Welcome to the Pace and Freedom with your host, James Pace, where ideas and voices are valued. No labels, no judgment, just conversation. Welcome to another amazing conversation on the Pace and Freedom podcast. Today, I have special guest, next president of the United States of America, Miss Kim Ruff. Now, this episode is very special because it's the first time ever on my podcast where I've had to break up an episode into two parts. And I am so grateful and so honored that Miss Kim Ruff has given me that opportunity and taken that much time to have this conversation with me. And we covered so much. And even within the two, nearly two hours, we still didn't cover everything that we wanted to cover. And that's because when you have an amazing person like Kim to have a conversation with, you it just goes on and on. And it was such a privilege. But before we get started with that conversation, I have a few announcements to make. I want to start with, you can still get Anarcho Coffee through anarchocoffee.com forward slash PIF. That's PIF for Pace in Freedom. You would be supporting the podcast by purchasing coffee through that link at Anarcho Coffee. And if you enjoy coffee, you will enjoy Anarcho Coffee, and you will be supporting a company that is libertarian-friendly. And if you're not a libertarian, you're also included into enjoying an amazing cup of joe. You can also purchase Pace and Freedom merchandise by going to the website, paceandfreedom.com, and then go to the merchandise site, and we have sweaters, shirts, tip cards, uh, taxation is theft tip cards, coffee mugs, and show your support for this podcast. I hope you enjoy the conversations that I have with the amazing guests that I have. And without further ado, let's go into the pre-roll announcement and then into our conversation with our future president. Hey, James, what you got there? Oh, just CBD gummy bears. Gummy bears with CBD, you mean? How do they smell? Just like candy, but with just CBD. Here, let me smell them. Oh, they do smell like candy. Yeah, it's my daily supplement that helps me with creativity and helps me focus on my conversations with guests and listeners. Check it out. JustCBDStore.com and check out all of their amazing products. All right, I'm pulling it up right now. Just make sure to use my 20% off discount code, PIF. Welcome, everybody, to another amazing conversation on Pace and Freedom. And today I have a very, very special guest. It is a great privilege. I've mentioned that I would have her on the show, especially after having the conversation with John Phillips. And here she is today, Kim Ruff, our soon-to-be president of the United States. And Kim... Introduce yourself for those that don't know you. Hi, James. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you so much for your optimism. I really appreciate it. Um, My name is Kim Ruff, and I am indeed running for president of the United States on the Libertarian Party ticket. I'm seeking their nomination at their national convention in Austin, Texas in May of 2020. And if I get the nod from the delegate base, then I will be the standard bearer for the entire Libertarian Party and all of the down ballot candidates. So that's the plan, and that's what we're doing. I am sure you'll get it, and I 
cannot wait to see your name on the ballot because we've had some uh some some rough times with uh with some libertarian candidates on the uh early voting stage we didn't get as much as we wanted but we did get some good ones in i think we won some offices in new york i believe new hampshire and i believe it was ohio and michigan yeah, we've we've been really fortunate. This past cycle, we have had upwards of 60 plus candidates elected to down ticket offices, which is really, really exciting. And in fact, you're seeing a real paradigm shift in terms of our culture politically, because you're getting a lot more people who are saying very libertarian, very liberty minded things and being very bold and outspoken. And they're, see- they're sealing the deal. They're getting those votes, they're getting into office, and they're able to affect positive change, which is totally awesome to see. And absolutely what we need to have going on right now. That is great. I don't know if uh, anybody told you, but I'm actually trying to run as well. It's a nonpartisan office, but nevertheless, for city council here in uh, San Diego. So I am super excited about that. I've never ran for anything except for class president once. And I ended up winning that by default because the two other candidates cheated and they found out. So I was the uh, third guy in line. So okay. <laughs> a win well, is a win, at, I guess. <laughs> yeah, look at it this way. You won because you had integrity. And the other two yep, knuckleheads that had the votes didn't. And so hopefully exactly. that'll be the case across the country. Yeah, I really do hope so. We need uh, a lot more integrity throughout the country. And it's uh, like you said, it's it's an interesting time, too, because, you know, we have on the Democratic Party, a lot of weird candidates that want some very extreme policies in place. So it will be an interesting election, I believe. So who do you think is going to be the the front the front runner heir apparent for the Democratic Party this go? Oof, it's tough. I mean, I think everything is leading up to uh, Joe Biden to to be the the nominee, uh, just kind of seeing what's on the news and how they're kind of playing the whole, it was almost like how they played, um, the last election, right. With Clinton and, uh, Bernie Sanders, it, you could already tell that was going to be Clinton, even though she wasn't the most popular candidate. Yeah. Uh, it kind of feels the same way this time where you kind of can predict that, it's going to be Joe Biden, even though he's not the most popular candidate right you now. You know, I actually really am hoping that it's Joe Biden because I would love nothing more than to go into a debate with him and call him out on being the grandfather of civil asset forfeiture. Absolutely. That would be awesome to see. And it would even be more awesome to see you on the stage with, you know, uh, President Trump, uh, Vice President Biden and yourself. What are the chances you think that we could get into a presidential debate? Oh, my goodness. Well, if we're to base it on kind of our experience in 2016, it's going to be a real challenge because it does seem like the mainstream media and even quote unquote nonpartisan organizations are very hellbent on crowding us out of that dialogue. So it's incumbent upon us to kind of explore alternative means of getting the information out to the people and creating that dialogue ourselves. 
that being said, I do feel that there is a major sociopolitical sea change going on in this country. And I think it's evident in how we're sort of becoming hysterical almost in a way. You know, we're getting to a point where people are so incredibly frustrated. We've become a bit of a powder keg. And I'm hoping folks can channel that frustration into action. And that action is going to be in them taking back their power. So I'm optimistic that if we all work hard as a team in the Libertarian Party and the wider liberty movement, that we can make a significant dent and get ourselves on that stage so that we can have that conversation and show how vastly wrong Republicans and Democrats are on their policies. Absolutely. You know, and that's that's awesome to hear because it seems like a lot of libertarians, we feel kind of defeated even before the the actual I guess we'll call it the game or the the battle, I guess, even starts, right? And it's refreshing to hear somebody like, you know, you who's running for president and on the libertarian ticket to have that optimism and want to attitude. And it's great because you also have, as your running mate, uh, John Phillips, who was pretty successful in Illinois with Cash Jackson, getting him on the stage with, you know, the the two gubernatorial candidates. So if anybody can do it, I definitely believe you two can do it. And it would be exciting to see again, a third party in the in the presidential debates. Yeah, I think that the I mean, Cash's Cash's run was awesome and and super inspiring. I mean, he took a lot of hits on the chin and he just caught up and kept swinging. It was really, really cool to see him just so resilient. And he had an amazing team behind him pushing to help make that happen. In fact, some of the people that are currently on our team actually worked on Cash's campaign as well. So a lot of it is one of those things where it goes both ways. You know, we we have as people who are activists and have worked behind the scenes, in the case of John, he's actually run for office. In my case, I've been a campaign manager and worked on campaigns. Um, you know, we see all of that effort put into it by the candidates. And when they're successful, that is such a coup for all of us because that's something that really inspires us. So seeing this big shift of all these down ballot candidates who got put into office, some of them in really contentious partisan races. It's very invigorating and it shows that something positive is coming out of all this. We've spent years frustrated and trying to push this rock up the hill and now we're seeing it finally break free. So we just have to stay the course and keep pushing. And I think that we really can make a positive difference. I definitely agree with you. It's very inspiring for a lot of these down ticket candidates that have uh, successfully gotten their their uh, office especially with the rough conditions it is for a libertarian to get through those hurdles uh, with the two major parties being so money powerful. I mean, me and Kevin were just talking about in our last episode that comes out next week. And we were talking about how the Republican Party, like when, I don't know if you know who uh, Jake Guttowitz is, but he ran for uh, county legislator in uh, Nassau County and it was tough, like the Republican, his Republican opponent and Democratic opponent were just getting so much funding from the Republican Party and the Democratic Party that it was it was a it was hard to to beat that. He did a really good job in raising money on his own, but it wasn't enough. And so he did. He had a good fight. 
and it was sad that he didn't make it, but seeing that other candidates were able to make it with that same amount of uh, hurdles is pretty amazing and pretty uh, inspiring. Yeah. Yeah, it's most definitely. So it kind of inspires me too with my, you know, me deciding to run. It gives me a little bit hope to see that others were able to make it and it won't, yeah, it will be a hard process, but it definitely is not impossible. So Right. And even if you don't get elected, look at it this way. It's that many more people who heard these ideas, that many more people who were touched and affected and realized that they're not alone. Because like we were talking about before we even started the show, if you issue labels and you just have a civil conversation with somebody about politics, 99 times out of 100, you're going to find that most of your ideas overlap in the most critical areas. And it's because of the fact that I think most people recognize that moneyed interests, powerful interests are the ones that are effectively making the decisions about how we manage our day-to-day affairs, telling us how to live our lives, and making it difficult for us to be successful, not just economically, but also as just individuals to feel truly free and be our authentic selves. So when you're out there and you're pushing that message, you're validating the experience of other people. You're telling them that the power lies in their hands and they too have the ability to stand up and fight back. And that's a really wonderful message to give to people, especially at a time where they feel disenfranchised, not just politically, but economically, emotionally across the board. Like it's very, very important they get that information. So I think win, lose, or draw that impact is so necessary and what you're doing is great. Definitely. And what you guys are doing is awesome too. I mean, I, as far as I can tell, I have followed you on Twitter. I followed John on, on Twitter and on Facebook as well, both of you. And I've noticed that your campaign really has been helping a lot of these down ticket candidates. And when I talked about John, he said that's something that he would do also when he was on the cash Uh, campaign as well. And, you know, it means so much for a down ticket candidate to have somebody like you guys to be there and encourage them and help them along the way. It's amazing. We don't see that much from other people in the Libertarian Party. What do you think that holds the Libertarian Party and other candidates, presidential candidates from helping the down ticket candidate? Well, I think in previous campaigns, a lot of it came down to a lack of familiarity with the people involved. You know, if you consider the fact that historically, we have not necessarily hired from within, we've usually sought from without or elevated somebody who was essentially libertarian and doing libertarian-esque things, but then we sought them to come run on our ticket and be our standard bearer rather than really pulling from somebody who's been active and involved in the party, whether it was on a state or local or national level. Um, So they don't maybe know those actors and they don't know those individuals. And they're maybe not as inclined necessarily to try and do a hat tip and give a shout out and give recognition to. I think that's really what kind of has happened in the past. So, you know, one of the things that we observed and the reason why we kind of got involved in this in the first place is that, you know, when 
Gary Johnson ran in 2016, there were several times where they would make campaign stops. And rather than throw some love to the down ballot candidates and give them a little bit of that screen time and a little bit of that mic time or podium time to get their message out, because they're the ones who are most likely to get elected, they would either ignore them or just weren't even aware of them. And that was really aggravating because that was our chance to really make sure those people who could do it, who could make that change, could get the recognition. So that's was kind of our goal to start with is make sure that we always kicked it back down to our down ballot candidates because the reality is they have the highest probability of getting elected and doing something positive. You know, I've talked about it a a bit on this podcast about trying to get down ticket libertarians into office because we need the foundation. A lot of regular voters don't really take the Libertarian Party seriously enough because they don't know what we can do. We haven't held that many offices. We haven't been able to prove that uh, the Libertarian movement actually works. And there's no way to really do it unless we actually get into those offices. So we need that foundation. We need to give people example of what we can do. And the way to doing that is to win those local offices. Like you said, they're a little bit easier to win if we actually invest into it. And once people, once voters see, oh, wow, my mayor, my libertarian mayor, for example, is doing an awesome job. I wonder what a libertarian governor could do. Right. Yeah, I totally agree that we need to kind of kick it back down to the the more local offices. Now, I want to touch up a, just a little bit on it. I don't want to spend too much time on this on my <laughs> on my podcast uh, on this conversation. Anyways, is setting the example for voters, and I feel that sometimes the Libertarian Party and a lot of Libertarian candidates, especially in the that are running for the higher offices, don't really take the take it serious enough to try to win over voters it seems like they just want more attention than anything else when they when they run i could be wrong it seems like you run on a, a more i guess pragmatic campaign maybe um i mean yeah i mean i suppose if you're are you kind of trying to compare me to other declared candidates and you know like okay sure. well Yes and no. In the case of the way that we decided to run the campaign, it was really more just a matter of normalizing liberty, you know, which is to say that I am a single mother. I work in manufacturing. I am a native to Arizona. I come from a family that has a small business. You know, these are these are the background and the experiences and with political identity, people are so deeply entrenched I, and they have a tendency to kind of eschew libertarianism just because it's frightening and new. I didn't want them to think that I didn't want them to discount what I had to say. I wanted them to realize that I'm your person next door. I'm the lady who lives next door to you, whose kids go to the same school as your kids, who has a job just like you, has this experience that's very similar to yours. And these are the ideas I hold because that's the truth. I am just like everybody else and we're not so different, you and I, you know? So that was kind of the mentality behind just be yourself, be your authentic, true self. Now, there's other candidates who have a different technique or a different marketing style. Like in the case of Dan, he's using what I would consider to be like kind of a, a foot in the 
the door technique by marketing himself that way, using the image and the logo and the style. And to the audience that he's reaching out to, that's actually very effective. It may not necessarily be effective across a wide swath of the public, but it definitely works for what he's trying to achieve in the places that he's trying to achieve it. In the case of Vermin, you know, Vermin shtick, and it is indeed a shtick. Vermin is a very, very good person, a real decent man, and I always enjoy seeing him. His shtick is to basically mock the existing system. And to people who, you know, are the sort of folks that would normally not even vote because they're so disgusted by the situation, they might see that and find the levity that he brings to be very validating and then use that as a springboard for them to look into other aspects of our belief system. Well, like it's like I said in the debate in South Carolina, it's all sales. It's all sales because as a candidate, particularly for a federal office where we really have a very a much lower probability of getting elected, our job is to be a spokesperson for these ideas and to relay them in a way that are relatable and understandable and bridge that gap between our experience and someone else's. And different techniques work on different people. My style may not translate to the kind of people that are going to find vermin appealing, but that's where he's so effective in his arena. And hopefully, you know, with all of these different candidates and all their different styles, when we do ultimately select from, you know, delegate base selects somebody to represent us, then all those efforts are funneled into that ultimate candidate who's going to be the standard bearer for the balance of the campaign. So just different, different strokes for different folks. And I don't feel like Vermin is mocking us or that Dan is discrediting us. I just think they have a different style of communication and sales. But at the the average voter that is not used to or really doesn't know much of the Libertarian Party, when that's the first thing they see is a gentleman with a boot on their head or a Willy Wonka hat at a what's supposed to be a formal debate, don't you think that kind of scares them away a little? I suppose. I I suppose. I mean, it really depends. Um, I suppose some people would find the theatricality really appealing, and I think other people might find it a turnoff. I suppose some people would find the fact that I'm a woman very appealing, and also other people might find it a turnoff. I mean, you can't necessarily gauge what's going to work for everybody, And that's sort of something that, you know, even though we've been a party since 1972, we're still kind of feeling it out. We're still kind of figuring out what's going to be the most effective system. I personally think the wisest strategy, which is why I chose to go this route, is for us to mitigate the differences and accentuate the similarities because that's where people feel the greatest amount of comfort or validation is when they see that there's similarities or some sort of normative representation in their candidate. So I don't want aspects. I don't want flash to be the only thing people see about me. I want them to see I'm educated and articulate and I know these positions well and that this is what we believe. And if they like it, great come on over. There's many more like us and we need you too. Right. No, and I and I totally agree with that. I think, you know, most people want to vote for somebody that struggles the same struggles they may struggle or that's live the same kind of life that they live, right? And you can do that very easily with 
both sides with liberals or conservatives. Again, if we just took away labels and you sat down with a uh, a liberal mom, a conservative mom, and a libertarian mom, you will find that they have the same concerns. They want the best for their their children. Right. Absolutely. And they're going to and at that point, once they determine that, they start to talk about what can we do to set the future for their children. And I think that's where great ideas come to light. And you find that at the end, there's all these similarities and all these great ideas to accomplish that. As soon as you throw in the label, though, it just it seems like everything falls apart. Right. I do kind of equate it to my experience working in manufacturing, which is in, right now, my job is I'm an operations director for a um, custom plastic and steel fabrication plant that caters to the semiconductor industry. But before I had that job working in the same general industry, I did sales as well. And being a woman in a typically male-dominated industry, you can get your foot in the door just by being a woman. But if you want to keep your foot in the door, you need to be educated and you need to show them that you're on the same level as the people that you're talking to. And that's kind of the the thing. Like you can you can get your foot in the door with a little bit of flash or intrigue, but you need to be able to hold your foot there and walk all the way through. And that's where you come down to being able to bridge that gap between their experience and yours, being able to be relatable and creating an open and respectful dialogue with them. I think that's something that's sorely lacking in our current political landscape. We're very divisive and it's really kind of been structured that way, but we're very, very divisive. And if we drop those labels and we drop those divisions and we start to see the commonality with each other, we will be able to come up with much healthier, equitable, and liberty-based solutions rather than this nonsense where we seek the government to solve these schoolyard differences, if that makes any sense. No, definitely. I mean, it's just like the conversation I had recently with a friend of mine who we were talking about some of our belief systems and you know, I've known her for years and she knows that I'm a libertarian and I know that she's a liberal. And we talked about same-sex marriage. We talked about, she's probably one of the few gu- uh, liberals that I know that are for less gun control. Oh, I love her. Yeah. It's funny. <laughs> I know, right? Like, uh, so that's way. something that we agree with. <laughs> but there's a lot of liberal things, you know, and then when it comes down to it and I asked her, so, I mean, we believe all in these same things and I'm telling you that the libertarian party agrees agrees 100% with you, why would you want to vote for a party that now seeks more or trying to be more socialist? Why would you vote for something like that, that will, t- that will push to take away certain rights that, you know, you really don't want to give up? And her answer is, it's, it's, va- it's not validating. Uh, the word I'm looking for is, I guess, understandable is I'm afraid that the other party will take away my other mm-hmm. rights. I may agree with a lot of the same rights that they agree with, but I'm afraid if they get elected, they will take away my rights. And if I vote libertarian, I might be the cause of that because I voted for libertarian instead of voting for a Democrat that will secure the rights that I care most right. about. You know, it's it's 
man, that is such a an unfortunate argument that we hear so often because so many people do the voting. They see it as there's only two options and they're voting for the lesser of two evils. You know, the devil we know or something that's slightly less terrible. And when there's reality is that there's a whole right. menu of options and, and not just in terms of political parties, but ideas. There's a whole menu of options. I remember in 2016 after the election, and of course Trump got it by a hair, I had a friend who I've known since high school who's based out of California, very liberal because he's in the he's in the Air Force, but he's also gay. And so he goes Democrat for that reason, um, for gay rights. And he was like, every person that voted for a third party is responsible for Clinton not getting elected. And I, I just had to laugh because if you look at it, 46 percent of the eligible electorate didn't even vote. So our little four percent. Right you know, good job, we did better than we had before, wasn't the thing that decided that. It was 46% of people who were so disgusted by the existing situation, they didn't even want to get out of their bed that day and vote. You know, I mean, 40,000 people, for God's sakes, got up, put on pants and voted for a dead gorilla. And But it's our fault because <laughs> we're trying to present a different option. That's absurd. That's an absurd argument. Right. But I understand the concern. It is. And it's just that rather than take that tack where you vote for the devil you know, vote for what you believe in and encourage the people in your community to do the same. Push back every opportunity you get. Go to your city council meeting and speak out. File initiatives and referendums or recalls or just find out what's out there and sign those petitions. But don't settle for less because you're afraid someone's going to try and take more away from you. Exactly. And it's so funny when I talk to both conservatives or liberals and I ask them about certain things, you know, and what they care about. And for example, I've, I've talked to a conservative and I asked them, you know, what, what is it that you have so against um, gay marriage? And his answer was, honestly, I don't have anything against it. I don't see it for myself, but I don't really care if somebody gets married with the same sex. So my question to him is like, okay, but then why would you vote candidates that are against then same-sex marriage when you have a party that supports both your rights and the rights of the liberal side? And again, it's that same answer. I'm afraid that the other side will win then and the rights that matter the most to me are taken away. If that's the case, the Libertarian Party has an opportunity there to really send out the message. And we have to figure out how to send that message to get most of what the people believe in is that I don't care about the other person's decisions or what they want to do. I just don't want my rights taken away. And then on the other side, the same, we need to be able to send that message essentially to say, Hey, we're not going to take anybody, anybody's rights. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I mean, that's that's the big thing is that we're the only party that advocates for everyone's rights all the time. We acknowledge wholeheartedly that every single individual has the right to life, liberty, and property, and that no other individual or group, no matter if it came with a populist mandate, has the right to take that away from you. And you know, there are going to be times where we're going to advocate for things that you might find morally repugnant, but if they're not violating your rights you don't have a right to take that away. Exactly. And 
it just comes down to how do we send that message? How do we uh, portray it? And I don't think the Libertarian Party has figured it out yet. Uh, we've been around since from the 1970s, and we still haven't figured out how to send that message out. Well, I, I disagree. I do think that we actually are pivoting toward a time where we are recognizing what the most effective way of getting that message out is, which is basically don't sugarcoat it. Don't misrepresent. Don't try and pander or appeal. Tell the truth. This is absolutely what we believe in. We believe in it all day, every day, and we're not going to yield. That's what we would need to be strong at. We don't want to seem like the, you know, hand wringing shy guy digging his toe in the dirt saying like, hey, there's also us over here. You know, you can come hang out with us. Right. No, we're right. We're absolutely right. And what we believe in is awesome and wonderful and great. And we need to all stand up as a population en masse and push back against government encroachments. And people need to hear that. They need bold, they need fearless, and they need unapologetic. And you're seeing that reflected in the way these down-ballot candidates are doing their messaging. They're going at it hard. They're pushing it and they're not backing down. And people are responding well to that because that's the kind of strength they need. They need to be able to see other people just like them standing up. Absolutely. A lot of that, though, is mostly on the down ticket candidate. I mean, in I've talked to a lot of, of these down ticket candidates, and they don't feel they've gotten the support from the Libertarian Party as much as they should have. And they did it essentially all themselves, them and their teams, to make it that far. So I guess that's where I'm coming from, is that we feel that the Libertarian Party is not doing enough for these down ticket candidates who busted butt to get to where they are at without any help from the Libertarian Party are very minimal help. Well, that I can't honestly comment on because I'm not really familiar with like John would have been the better person to ask because he's a sitting representative on the LNC. So he's got a lot more visual on their budget constraints and what other programs and policies and things that they're working on with the LNC. So I don't know if they just don't have the capital to be able to dedicate to assisting down ballot candidates. I do know that ballot access is something that's hugely important to them at the national level. And that's something that they try to earmark funds for and use to ensure that we have it. And we will indeed have it in 2020 for all 50 states. Um, but maybe there is a budgetary constraint or there's other situations going on that preclude them from being able to give that kind of financial support. But the reality, too, is that even my own campaign, you know, John and I are obviously not getting paid and we have to raise our own funds on our own. And our entire staff is comprised of strictly volunteers. Nobody's getting a dime. And it's all fueled by passion, by just genuine belief in, in what we're trying to achieve and the necessity of doing it. And I don't begrudge the Libertarian Party or the LNC for that fact. I think that's just kind of the nature of the beast. We're smaller. We have a little bit less opportunity to get some of that financial support. And so it really falls on our shoulders to do a lot of the heavy lifting. And I... I will agree that the thing with the Libertarian Party and a lot of us Libertarian candidates, you know, we're not wealthy people. You know, a lot of us come from middle class 
And we don't have the type of, I guess, connections that Republicans and Democrats have. And it does make it a little bit more difficult, but it makes us a lot more inspiring, I think. I mean, Cash Jackson for me was a great inspiration. He was he was the same rank as I was when I was in the Navy uh, when he got out and had very little money. And he threw an amazing campaign that was, in my opinion, you know, viewed by nationwide with just having him in the run. And that's pretty inspiring. And he got a lot of votes for very little money. Yeah, it's actually the the thing that was really cool about Cash's campaign is that, you know, in addition to being just like all the rest of us, you know, not somebody who comes from privilege or power or wealth, but rather your everyday average working guy. um, He also was dealing with some stuff in his personal life that people tried to twist and turn and throw back on him. And he shrugged it off like he was dipped in Teflon. And I think that that's got to be so totally inspiring to anybody who looks at the political landscape and begs off of it because they're concerned about the character assassination that will inevitably come just due to the fact that we're all human beings. You know, by because we're challenging the system, because we're going toe to toe with it, they're going to sling mud, they're going to shoot arrows at us. And to see somebody like him just shrug it off and keep trucking is so incredibly awesome. It's just awesome because it's like, you're right. You carry with you the truth. You have it. You're right. You're doing the right thing for the right reasons. And because of that, nothing is going to stop you. It's. I hope that it's inspirational yeah. to everybody who watches it. And I hope that the rest of us can continue to, to do that for others who are watching. Absolutely. I think you're doing it. Definitely. I mean, I was a little worried there for a minute when, uh, you know, we were getting closer and closer to this, to this season. And I wasn't really seeing that inspiration that, that was inspired in me, like, uh, campaigns like Cash Jackson's and, um, Jake Gutwitz. And then you and, uh, John appeared and I was like, wow, this, there we go. This is it. So, and I, I'm sure the other candidates do inspire that kind of inspiration into others as well in just in different ways. The one worry that I have, and I've spoken to a few other libertarians about is we're worried that at the last minute, somebody like Bill Weld or, you know, Gary Johnson or somebody like that can come in and just the same thing happens again. Basically they come in they sweep, sweep away the nomination and we get somebody that we don't really necessarily want representing us. Is that a fear that any of the other presidential candidates, including yourself may have, or are you guys pretty confident that that's not going to I think that there's a a distinct possibility that that will happen. Uh, Not necessarily that they're going to sweep the nomination though. They will, there will definitely be conventioneering. That is kind of the, 
the nasty beast that we experience in the Libertarian Party is that because we have some various states that have really open criteria for delegate selection, you have people who can come from any area and sit with a delegation for a state that they're not even a member of. Um, and then they could potentially, you know, if you have somebody who really wants to push a particular candidate, they can stack the deck and have people that aren't even and haven't been members of the party join up and then sit as a delegate and vote, that absolutely could happen. But that just means that it's that much more important for us to basically lock arms and crowd them out. It means everybody who is part of this movement with us, who wants to ensure that we have a legitimately solid libertarian speaker or candidate out there front and center, needs to go to national convention in 2020, come hell or high water. Like even if you got to crowdsource this, get the money and get yourself there because every person matters. Every vote matters. You're a delegate. You're supposed to represent your region. You're supposed to speak on behalf of your delegation. And if this is really what's important to you, show up. Um, so there's that aspect for sure. I do think if I was a betting person, cause you got to bear in mind, I sat, you know, I've, I've been on the periphery in the sense that I've worked behind the scenes rather than been front and center as a candidate this whole time. And so you do a lot of sort of political punditing and being a bit of a, a wonk or whatever, trying to gauge what's going to happen in the atmosphere. If I was a betting person, I would bet that Bill Weld loses the Republican nomination and then rolls up curbside in 2020 asking for the nomination. And there's going to be some people pushing for it. So I doubt sincerely Gary Johnson is going to necessarily do that. And largely because my read on him in 2016 is I don't think he really wanted to do it then either. So I definitely think in 2020, the, right. like the man is tired, let him rest, <laughs> you know, but I do think that there's going to be some shenanigans and it's incumbent upon all of us to make sure it doesn't happen. I, and I hope so. Uh, do you think that the Libertarian Party will ever kind of fix those issues at some point where we have a little bit more of a organized and streamlined way of nominating candidates <laughs> A more, I guess, across yeah, the board. Yeah, I do think so. I think that there's a couple of things that we can sincerely consider to make the process less likely for some, you know, last minute nonsense to occur, which is states should change their bylaws to create stricter criteria regarding delegate selection. That way they can ensure that people who are known entities and are consistent and steadfast and legitimately libertarian are selected or tapped to be delegates rather than having it open-ended to join the state or get put in. The other aspect is, is that this happened in 2016 quite a bit, Whenever the sec the then sitting secretary, Alicia Matson would notify us of how many people were there, we had an opportunity as a delegation to approve including additional people through credentialing and allowing them to sit with a delegation. I know we a lot of us did it because we thought, you know, great, the more the merrier. This is really good optics and the more people participate, wonderful, but that's also a loophole that people who aren't legitimately libertarian could walk right through. Additionally, and this is something that I really think should be considered as far as how we select presidential candidates and how, when we do so, we are really late to the game, like really, really late to the game. We're having our nominating convention in we May are. of 2020 at the end of the month. 
And then we're affording whoever gets to be our standard bearer effectively, what, four and a half months? Well, no, about seven months, six months, six, seven months to get the word out, get the exposure, get the donations and get the support before the general election. That's not a lot of time. As libertarians, we have to start earlier, work harder and be better. It's like that Daft Punk song. We've got to be better, faster, stronger, harder. Like we have to do it way earlier. We need to be the ones to, instead of allowing the Republicans and Democrats to set the standard and then trying to adhere to it, we need to reach, we have to change the game. We start sooner. We have people run, you know, you can have them run as a slate starting earlier, get those donations sooner, have them getting those media attention sooner. We should actually be saying this person is the Libertarian Party presidential candidate right now in November of 2019 instead of May of 2020. That's how it should be done. So right. hopefully there's something that we can look at it where we we really do start working toward that rather than letting things lay fallow and then having somebody show up three weeks before the convention, change their party affiliation and seek our nomination. Right. Now, and we, we are always like really late in the game. And it's funny because you already know who the who the Democrat is way earlier. You already know who the Republican is way earlier. They have the advantage at that point. And the Libertarian Party being not as financially wealthy as the other two parties, we do need to start way we should start earlier than them. We should be working on this around the clock. But at the same time, I can see where it's difficult because a lot of people that are part of the movement that are doing these things are all on volunteer basis oh, yeah. and we all have our day jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Where, you know, it's kind I of, agree. And that is difficult. kind of the situation that we get into is that every election cycle, particularly in states that really have to work hard to get ballot access, like New York up until Larry Sharp had his gubernatorial run, they had to gather petitions and get all those signatures in. And it cost them, I think, $70,000 in 2016 to ensure Gary Johnson was on the ballot. Now, part of that's paid petitioners, you know, who get a buck or two bucks for every verified legitimate signature. But then you have people who have full-time jobs, have families, and they're still going out there gathering signatures. And it's exhausting. So they do this major push to make sure that our candidate gets on the ballot and they're toast. It's incredibly deflating, exhausting, wearying, and they need that time to rest and recoup. But we as an overall movement should basically say once that election closes out and we get the results, start running again. Always be running. We always need to be running. We right. always need to get the message out. The cool thing about this go though, and this is a you know credit to the national party, particularly Dan Fishman, the executive director, they're pushing more to create actual televised or recorded debates, which is great because they used to not do that at all for just the this bunch of various candidates who were seeking the nomination. They waited until after a nomination was secured. But they've had Ohio and Massachusetts and South Carolina, and they're looking at doing Georgia and California, uh, Pennsylvania, and then another state in April where they're going to have the presidential candidates get together, have a debate, record it, broadcast it, put it out there. I think that's great. That's absolutely beneficial to all of us, even if some of these people fall by the wayside 
that's that much more effort we're putting into. And the more media exposure we can create for ourselves, that's better. So there is, there are some good things going on and there it's a process and there's improvement, you know, there it's definitely, we learn, we, you know, sometimes we cut our teeth, sometimes we bust our teeth, but ultimately we learn and we grow and we're going to be a formidable foe in 2020. I, I hope so. We need a, another big wave. We've had a few good waves that it feels like we kind of maybe dropped the ball on uh, the Ron Paul movement. That was a huge wave where we had a lot of young people kind of join the libertarian movement. And then we kind of lost them to socialists. And then we had Gary Johnson did, uh, and I think an excellent job uh, considering the circumstance during 2016. And we kind of, again, took that break and we lost a lot of movement and momentum after that. I think that we need to really focus on like, if we do get this momentum and I feel like we're starting to pick up, especially with all these wins that we've had on the down ticket, we really need to just sprint to the end with it, you know, to the next election cycle, to the midterm and get more down ticket. Yeah, absolutely. You know, notwithstanding my serving the next four years after 2020 as president and dealing with all of that nonsense there, uh, then I'll plan on running for city council in Peoria. So (laughs) yeah, we, we definitely need to capitalize on those movements. We need to be not so fast to tell people they're not welcome or they're not quite as good as we think they should be, because let's be real. Unless you are a gold star libertarian, every single one of us came in here from a different political ID, a different baseline ideology, and we were curious and eager and we wanted to learn. And if we were lucky, we met some really exceptional people who took us under their wing and they advised us and corrected us and challenged us, but they did it in a very respectful, loving manner and we're better for it. But when we have people who come in and they're like, yeah, I want to do it. And we're like, hold on, you're not libertarian enough. You need to leave. (laughs) Then we end up getting into a situation where we kill ourselves. (laughs) We shoot ourselves in the foot. We kill that momentum that we're building. And, you know, today's enemy could be tomorrow's biggest ally and advocate. So we really need to be willing to embrace people and then gently guide them toward what is correct. And that means we need to always be telling the truth, always be bold, always be unapologetic. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. And why do you think that we do that as a libertarian party? I mean, for me, you know, I've kind of experienced that a little bit as well when I first started getting into the movement and would talk to different libertarians and try to really push my way. I mean, it wasn't until this podcast that I really got to talk to some bigger names in the libertarian movement. But in the, in the beginning, it was tough. It was, you know, getting called not libertarian enough, or I don't know what I'm talking about. Why do we do that to newcomers? Why don't we bring them under? Well, I think a know, lot of it wing. has to do with a, a genuine concern and a legitimate concern about our party being hijacked by people who hold ideas that are antithetical to libertarianism. Now, the best way to deal with that is to make sure that it is codified in our platform. It's codified it in how we conduct our our business meetings or our bylaws and that we have candidates, we endorse and support and elevate candidates that we've vetted and made sure that they held these beliefs and that they agreed that they are indeed going to represent these ideas 
to in order to maintaining and continue on with our endorsement. But we we do have a genuine concern that there is going to be, you know, people are going to mistake us for Republican light. And sometimes that comes down to the fact that we have candidates who misrepresent our point of view. Um, or we have a, a concern that there's going to be infiltration by you know, other groups of people who are looking just strictly to submarine us. So there's sort of a, a paranoia or suspicion that's not necessarily without merit. And I think there is kind of a, we do sort of side eye a lot of the newcomers because we're concerned. Um, but we also need to be mindful right. of the fact that most people are decent. Most people are here because they want to learn. And people who are decent will be known pretty easily because they will be willing to come in and help out and listen. So we just need to be a little more patient and a little less likely to rush to judgment. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode, part two of this conversation with Kim Ruff. Don't forget to subscribe to YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. Give me a like, a review. Go to the website, become a pledge member to get this episode and the next episode at least 24 hours ahead of time and other great perks. Check out the merch store. Get Anarcho Coffee at www.anarchocoffee.com forward slash PIF. Thanks again for listening.